Welcome back to another episode of Wellbound. We're your hosts, Peyton Janicek and Brooke Snyder. Today's episode is all about gut health. Woo. So we're going to be talking a lot about kind of what we deem as important when it comes to the gut health conversation. So this is something that we get a lot of questions about, I know, in both of our practices. Yeah. So this is just a topic that I think is important because there's a lot of misconceptions or there's supplements that people use and um, the idea of managing our gut health is one that can be kind of managed on your own in your own lifestyle. So we're going to touch on that a little bit deeper. Generally speaking, I mean, there are certain conditions that require, you know, more care, more management, even medication sometimes. But in my practice, I've gotten a lot of questions over the last few years because I think it's a hot topic on social media and in the media right now. And typically with that comes some misinformation with the overarching topic of gut health kind of like what we've mentioned in the past, sometimes you have like celebrities or influencers or even certain practitioners who kind of grab onto a snippet of information and really run with it when that's not exactly what the research is pointing to. Um, And we'll touch on this a little bit more, but we, in terms of this topic in general, um, scientists, researchers, we don't actually know much. So we're going to talk about what we do know or what the evidence-based information looks like. And hopefully you feel like you have a good understanding of gut health as a whole and then how you can positively impact yours by the end of this episode. Right. And like Brooke said, we'll talk about it kind of in a general sense. So the people who don't necessarily need to do anything crazy for their gut health, like Brooke said, there are certain conditions that are concerning we're going to touch on those a tiny bit, but for the most part, this is for the majority of general population. Um, and so, yeah, we are going to give kind of just a background and then a little bit of a deeper dive. So it does get a little bit sciencey, but for a good reason, mm-hmm. because I also want to reiterate that science changes over time. So we're talking about this now in the sense of what we know and what especially like our opinions as registered dietitians are on some of the different things that we see out there, but this can change. So if in five years or in two years, something changes and you're listening and you're listening, (laughs) don't come back and come after us because, because there, I mean, at that point we hope to stay current enough on the research to then be able to notify or understand those changes and make the changes in our own practice. And we'll update you guys. Yeah. Yes. Cool. So, um, to start, I'm going to have Brooke kind of steer this one um, specifically. So I'm going to be asking her a couple questions about things, but obviously I'll interject here and there too. So when we talk about the background of gut health, do you want to dive into this a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super fascinating. So from the time that we're born to about three years old, the core of our gut microbiome is assembled. And this is based on our exposures, experiences, and our overall genetic makeup. So for example, were you born via C-section or were you born vaginally? Like did, were you breastfed or not? And then also where in the world were you born in terms of climates, soils, germs are different in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And so all of these exposures and experiences really make up the core of our gut microbiota or our microbiome as a whole, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then this gut, I'll use the terms interchangeably like gut flora or microbiota. I'll just use those interchangeably, but this really plays an important role in our overall metabolism, our endocrine, neural and immune function. So hormones, 
neurotransmitters, and then our overall immunity. And as we get older, depending on our lifestyle, so our diet, our exercise routine, stress levels, how we manage stress and other habits that we have, whether those are positive or negative, we can continue to impact our microbiota diversity and our overall gut health, which in turn can impact our physical and our mental health. And I'll touch a little bit more on the connection between gut health and mental health. It's actually something that I've dove into pretty deeply. And I think that it's extremely fascinating. So I'll touch on that a little bit later, but mainly, you know, just for some background, it's important to know that taking care of your gut is extremely important. And like I had mentioned, I think I mentioned this earlier, but research is starting to indicate just how important this is, but a really interesting and not really well-known fact is that research in terms of gut health is actually fairly newer it's a fairly newer concept. So yeah, I think I mentioned this, but scientists and researchers have started diving deeper into, um, overall environment in the gut food and mood, and just how integral gut health really is within the last decade, even the last five years. So super recent in terms of research. Yeah. And I think it's just important to kind of backtrack and look at like, this all starts from when you're literally born. Yeah. And I was talking to Kanan about this the other day, just how, cause I was reading an article and it had talked about, um, you know, if you're born vaginally versus if you're born via C-section, which obviously a lot of people don't have an option for what happens oh, with yeah. that. And yeah. so, I mean, it's not anybody's one's better than the other. You just might get a little bit more, um, diversification with the vaginal birth. Um, and I was telling Kanan about that and he was like, yeah, I actually knew that. And I was like, what do you mean you knew that? Like, that's so crazy. But I was like, I remember learning about it in school and Mm -hmm. then it came back up and I was like, I forgot that was a thing. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting. So this all happens from when we're really, really young, Mm -hmm. which I, I think it's important to make the point of like, if you're like, Oh no, like I was born with this terrible gut microbiota you're not out for the count. Like there's so many things we can do as adults, as, you know, teenagers, kids, like elderly people that can still improve and make an impact on. Absolutely. Yeah. There are still lifestyle changes we can make to improve our overall gut health. But, um, that is just some background. I think it is super fascinating that by the time we're three years old, like the core of our gut environment is kind of like predetermined essentially, which is super interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about, again, you know, there's a lot of connection between our brain and our gut and that gut brain axis. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Just touch on the different things with that. Because again, we'll get a little bit sciencey, but we'll we'll hone it back in. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of mentioned like the connection between food and your overall mood and how that connection is essentially like occurring is through what's called the gut marine axis. So your brain and your gut communicate with each other and they do so again through the gut brain axis, even more specific here, the vagus nerve. Um, so that's what connects kind of the gut and your brain and where the communication happens. Um, your gut and your brain are also connected through certain chemicals called neurotransmitters. And although most people think neurotransmitters are only produced in the brain, Many neurotransmitters are actually produced by your microbes in your gut. And I think this is so fascinating. It's like some of my favorite things to talk about. Um, 
if you don't know what a neurotransmitter is, I'll dive into it here in just a second, but neurotransmitters and hormones play such a large role in our mood and our overall behaviors. And so I want to start by explaining what a few of those are and what their corresponding behaviors are. So in terms of neurotransmitters, you may have heard of norepinephrine or adrenaline, and that kind of equates to our arousal. Um, So our flight or flight, fight or flight response. Um, Then you have serotonin, which is kind of our homeostasis or that stabilizer neurotransmitter kind of keeps us nice and balanced and in our like steady or peaceful state. Then you have dopamine. Typically, we know that this is associated with pleasure, something called acetylcholine. That's associated with learning and memory. And then we call this GABA or gamma aminobutyric acid and then also glutamate. Um, That really plays a role in like our sense of calmness as well as controlling excitation. So just a couple, you know, neurotransmitters and certain behaviors that they correspond to. But a really fun fact, it's actually my favorite fact of um, when we talk about nutrition, when someone asked me what my favorite fun fact is, I like to throw this one out there. And it's that 95% of our serotonin. So again, that neurotransmitter that's referred to as that stabilizer and plays a large role in maintaining our homeostasis is produced in the gut. So 95%. I mean, that's yeah, almost, almost all of it is actually produced in our gut. When we think about these things though, like neurotransmitters, I, I know before I knew about this stuff, I just thought like, oh, those are like chemicals or, um, whatever synapses that happen in your brain. Like I didn't even associate them with the gut. So I just think that that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And like we even talked about, so in our previous episode about sugar, the dopamine effects and how dopamine can be seen in things like having sex or eating good food or exercising, exercise or drug use. Right. And so there's all these different things and all these neurotransmitters transmitters play a huge role in just how our body functions. And so same thing with the adrenaline and how Brooke mentioned the fight or flight mode. If that's high for too long, that can be an issue too. So it can, yeah. you know, lead to issues with stress and all of that. So yeah, there's and, a lot to do with that and we'll touch on. Right. And so like aspect. speaking of, of stress and how being in that fight or flight response for too long, that can then start to impact some of our hormones. Mm-hmm. So hormones like, I'm not just talking like estrogen, testosterone, I'm talking things like cortisol, which is, if you don't know what cortisol is, it's considered the primary stress hormone. Right. Um, so an acute response or short-term response to high cortisol would be increases in blood sugar and heart rate. Um, let's see, increased availability of like substances that repair tissues, suppressing our digestive system or reproductive system and like growth processes. So yeah, this is why like, and you know, we'll talk about the long-term effects, but this is why when we do have stressors, you want them to kind of be shorter term because they're not going to have such a big impact like those long-term cortisol levels. Right. Yeah. So when, if cortisol levels don't return to normal and that fight or flight response remains turned on, this can really cause disruption in the body, which could lead to like rapid weight gain, um, a flushed round face, which is typically referred to as like moon face. Mm -hmm. Um, this has actually happened to me in a period of 
of time in my life. I can touch on it if we want to here. Um, but higher blood pressure, osteoporosis. So things like hollowing or, you know, brittle, weak, fragile bones, mood swings, anxiety, depression, are increased like thirst response or frequent urination, impaired sleep, chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease or others. So obviously these symptoms are more, um, more severe yeah. than, than when our cortisol just spikes in the short term. And, you know, we, we have hormones like cortisol to help in mm-hmm. stressful situations or to arouse us so that we're able to tackle something that's a little bit more heightened in life, whether that's a stressor or or whatever it is. But we also need to have the regulatory components to bring us back down. And I think as oh my gosh, English Brooke, as registered dietitians, it's important for us to talk about the nutrition side of that and how we can utilize certain nutrients and certain foods to help those regulatory processes kick in so that we're able to kind of get back to that steady state. And this is kind of on the fly, but maybe we touch on personal experiences where we felt that high cortisol. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can talk about a little bit. um, I've mentioned, I think in previous episodes that I did struggle with um, anxiety for probably about, I say two and a half years, but like probably longer than that. Yeah. Um, It just kind of came out at one point. And I mean... I had all of that. So you have, I actually, I lost a bunch of weight because I couldn't eat because I was anxious. It was like a whole thing. But I mean, I had, you know, I, I remember at one point my resting heart rate was like 130 Wow. because I was just like on, on it all the time. Like I was freaking out all the time and I couldn't figure out why. And then you kind of get into this scary mindset of like, you know, I was getting heart palpitations and my hands and feet would go numb when I would have these experiences. And I know that my adrenaline was just so high at that point. And I would start to think like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with my health. There's something wrong with my heart. Like, and I don't know if everybody has to do this, but in order to get prescribed like anxiety medication at that point, I had to go through like a cardiac workup. So they had to do an echo and I had to wear a halter monitor and get all this stuff done. And they then were able to rule out like, okay, there's your heart looks okay. You know, like things are fine there. And so that's kind of gives like a little bit of peace of mind, but at the same time, you kind of always think there's something wrong with you. So it's a spiral, um, which can then lead to depression and even more anxiety. And so luckily I was able to turn a corner and now, you know, I'm no longer on those medications and I'm able to manage that, but it is. It's scary. And like the cortisol, I just know my body was in a constant state of stress and it did a lot of damage on me. Oh yeah. I mean, I can touch on my personal experience too. My symptoms were a little different than yours, but, um, there was a period of time. It was my first semester of college actually. And I think I touched on this too. It wasn't just an adjustment. Um, I had moved from out of state. So I moved to Nebraska. I was starting to play volleyball and go through, you know, a division one season and you know what that looked like. I was starting college for the first time and was taking some pretty hard classes in that first semester. And so balancing all of that and being away from family, I didn't anticipate because I was always a pretty independent individual and I didn't anticipate it to affect me that Mm -hmm. much, but it did. And, um, I, again, we actually did, um, our athletic trainer at the time had us, we had to wear these sleep 
watches or like bands to track Mm -hmm. our sleep. And along with that, we were also doing cortisol testing. So we'd have to go up to the stadium in the morning and like spit in these tubes and Mm -hmm. they would analyze our saliva and kind of put all of this information together. And my biggest symptom at the time, which I didn't tell anybody was that I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, it wasn't that I wasn't tired. I just couldn't shut my mind off and get to sleep. And it was because my cortisol levels were so so high for so long. And so finally, you know, our athletic trainer was like, Hey, like your watch says that you're not going to bed until like 3am. Like, what is the deal? And I was like, I'm, that's not on purpose. Like I'm not wasting time watching TV or like playing on my phone. Like I remember there would be times where I was in bed almost in tears because it was like, it's 3am and I have weights at six or six 30 yeah, in the morning. Right. And I'm going to have to do this and, and three, another three hour practice tomorrow. Like what is going on? And so with that, um, impaired sleep, like I said, was my biggest, um, my biggest symptom, but I had the moon face, the flushed round face, and I had experienced some like rapid weight gain. So some pretty intense weight gain within just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we, once we got the analysis from that saliva testing back, it was like, oh, well, there you have it. Like your cortisol is pretty high. And so I just tried to manage that the best I could at the time. And then really what helped me to be completely honest was when we had that first winter break and I was able to kind of come home and just be removed from the kind of like stressful situation for a little bit, just to be able to kind of take a deep breath, enjoy some nature and be like, whoo, like everything everything's okay. And yeah. after that, I did a much better job, um, because I had the resources to help. We had a great sports psych, um, sports psychologist at Nebraska that I also met with too, to just kind of help with some management of that. But, um, yeah, this stuff is no joke and yeah. it can, it can really affect you. And like, whether that's in the short term or, or long term, it can really affect you if you don't get it corrected. Yeah. So I think that lends to just us, wanting to know more about the impact of how nutrition specifically can impact those different, you know, reactions in the body. Um, so do you want to kind of touch on that a little bit on the background of some of these different components? Yeah, I did a lot of research, um, actually in our, for our clinical case studies, a lot of my research, because I was so interested in in this was how specific nutrients or foods impact your Well, yes, your gut health, but also your overall mental health as well. And so, yeah, some of the foods that we eat can help influence our brain's regulatory components and inflammatory cytokines. Really what that just means is it helps, it can help either positively or negatively contribute to inflammation in, in the body. Um, the foods we eat can help reduce cortisol and also help make neurotransmitters and improve that neurotransmitter reception. So, Basically, all of this is saying that there's something to be said about the foods we eat impacting our overall mood. And I remember this specific chart during my clinical case study, and maybe I'll throw it up on Instagram when we post this episode just to kind of show you what that looks like. But an an example here in a lot of the research that I did was the incorporation of anti-inflammatory foods in reducing depressive symptoms. So that was my main focus in my clinical case study. Um, and I'll touch on more on anti-inflammatory foods in just a bit, but some specific nutrients to really note here are B vitamins, vitamin C, and zinc. So these three nutrients help convert 
amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, to important neurotransmitters like serotonin, um, like dopamine. Omega-3 fatty acids, so this is kind of a fourth nutrient I'm throwing in here, improves that neurotransmitter reception and then protects cell membranes from inflammation. So essentially what I am trying to say is we have those three nutrients, B vitamins, vitamin C, and zinc that really help produce the important neurotransmitters. And then omega-3 fatty acids help improve that neurotransmitter reception. So it's all kind of a cycle, mm-hmm. um, but I think that that's super important. Um I can touch on a few of the foods that can, that yeah. have like B vitamins, vitamin C, zinc, things like that. Yeah, I, I guess do. we should cover that. Yes. Um, so B vitamins can be found in a lot of our animal based proteins as well as whole grains. Mm-hmm. Um, vitamin C commonly found in like citrus fruits, but things like bell peppers. So actually bell peppers have like three times more of the vitamin C than an orange does, which is fascinating. Um, but mostly your fruits and vegetables are all going to have vitamin C for the Mm -hmm. most part. And then zinc is going to be some nuts and seeds, things like cashews, and then a lot of our beans and peas, as well as certain meats like red meat. I'm, I'm correct there, right? Okay, sweet. Um, and then the omega-3 fatty acids, that's going to be things like fatty fish. So like salmon, tuna, and a lot of our nuts and seeds. So I'm thinking walnuts, almonds, pecans, things like that. And then you can also think things like almond butter, I don't know if they have different seed butters as well too. Right. Um, So those are just some foods that you could maybe start to incorporate a little bit more of. For example, I know nuts and seeds is one that a lot of us don't really think of very often, but maybe you could throw some walnuts on top of a yogurt parfait or add a little make your own trail mix in as a snack, just Mm -hmm. something to get some more omega-3s in. Yeah. Which you're probably thinking like, wow, all the foods you just listed are like what people say you're supposed to include in a healthy diet. But I think that's just to prove a point that the variety matters. Like we don't just want to be having one thing all the time. We want to make sure, and this is what we always say to all clients is Mm -hmm. it's okay to have those things, those staples that you love. But if we can try to vary up even the color of your fruits and vegetables. So if you're someone who's always having like an apple, try something like banana and they don't have to be crazy expensive. Like you don't have to go be eating dragon fruit or pomegranate or whatever. Um, just different colors in whatever items that you like is going to be helpful there. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I don't know if you noticed this or if Kanan is like this, but Matt is somebody who he's like a robot. Like he could eat the same thing Mm -hmm. every single day every single week for the rest of his life. Like he's so routine like that. And I just, I cannot do it. Yeah. Like I can't either. I genuinely can't, but I've noticed a lot of my male clients are the same way. So I don't know if it's just, if there's a difference there between men and women, but a lot of my male clients will come to me and be like, Hey, just so you know, if you, they're like, Hey, I just, I just need to know like a meal plan. If you just give me like one to two things that I could eat for breakfast, lunch, dinner, like I will do that for the rest of time. And I'm like, well, that's not the point. Yeah. It's, um, it's the same way for Kenan. Like every single time I'm out of town for a trip or traveling for work or something, he will have like, he's fine having just a sandwich. He might have pizza for dinner. He might have just like leftovers, whatever that is. Right. And he could eat that all day, like every day. Oh, I will tell you the, I mean, not to just like go in on her husband (laughs) right now, but like every single day, this is Matt's breakfast. It is a bowl of oatmeal with peanut butter on top of it and 
he likes a specific brand of peanut butter. So we, I always buy two different kinds, but anyways, oatmeal and peanut butter. And then he makes a egg and egg white scramble with turkey sausage in it. And that is his breakfast every single day. So he'll scramble the eggs and egg whites, or sometimes he'll like mix it up and have them like over medium Mm -hmm. has the turkey sausage in there. And then the bowl of oatmeal and peanut butter and every single day, even on the weekends, like he wants to get up, you know, I'm thinking like Sunday we could make pancakes or we could do something a little different. And he like starts making his breakfast that he has every single day. I'm like, can we not have that this morning? That's so funny though, because Kanan, he, he is like a simple breakfast guy. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I feel like I kind of go for convenience. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what a lot of people do, but Kanan's more of like, he'll have milk with protein powder and a banana. And that's his every single morning. Yeah. Because he's just like, I don't have time. Like he's the kind of guy who's waking up like five minutes before he needs to leave. And so, yeah, he, he could basically, he could just have the same thing all the time. And I'm different in that. I've had both like female and male clients that some of them are just like, yeah, just give me like three options and I'm good. And I'm like, no, I can't. I'm like, I'll gladly do that for you. But like, for me, I have to have different changes. Like, I don't know how I very rarely make the same thing more than once. Oh, same. I just, I, I mean, I love trying new things, new flavor profiles, but then I also do try and incorporate some education there when when I get some of those clients that are like, Oh no, I'm super routine. Like I have the same thing all the time. I'm like, well, we'll touch on why, you know, variety matters yeah. to kind of like bring it back. But, um, anyways, I just, I like to always mention that, Hey, it, it, we don't have to change the complete composition of your meals and snacks. But like you mentioned earlier, like maybe you just add a different color. So like mm-hmm. you choose a different fruit this week, maybe it's seasonal, maybe it's not, um, right. or a vegetable or what, whatever that may be or grain, you know, maybe you're used to always having like brown rice and you want to venture out and try something different like a quinoa or maybe it's like a lentil based pasta Mm -hmm. for your like starch week or I love switching a a sweet potato or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wrapping up the variety matters conversation, a recent study revealed that consuming more than 30 different plant foods each week was correlated to a higher microbiota diversity. Um, So microbiota diversity or having diversity within your gut environment is ideal. So when we talk about plant foods first, I want to mention like this is not just 30 different like fruits or vegetables that'd be Mm -hmm. pretty difficult to achieve. A plant food can be things like beans or peas, lentils, legumes, um, your whole grains, right? Different starches, et cetera. So basically in this study, they had a control control group and an experimental group and the control group only consumed 10 different plant foods per week while the experimental group consumed 30 different plant foods per week and i'm sure as you're probably coming to the conclusion the the takeaway here was that the experimental group who consumed 30 different plant foods per week that was associated with having a greater diversity in the gut um so increasing the amount of fiber that you consume through plant foods, again, like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, lentils, legumes, nuts, and seeds can one, help achieve that microbial richness within the gut, but then two, it can also help inhibit bacteria from producing harmful metabolites. So that basically overall quality, more plant foods, better like quality of our nutrition can help prevent harmful metabolites from kind of growing or occurring within the gut too. Um, 
And then same thing, conversely, a decreased fiber consumption was associated with a decreased diversity in the gut, which isn't ideal. So I just thought that that was a study that was worth mentioning. And maybe we can post the link to some of these studies in the yeah. description. Yeah, no. And I mean, it just, again, kind of reiterates what we've been saying about the importance of that variety in our food. And when we talk about microbial richness too, and we kind of talked about fiber, so that can kind of go into the conversation about pre and probiotics where right. people are asking about taking certain pre and probiotics, which obviously a lot of dietitians, except for those working with maybe some specific conditions, right. um, are going to talk about food. Yeah. I mean, I know that I always like to approach any conversation from a food first mentality. Um, so kind of thinking like, Hey, is this something that we could enhance our diet with? Or is this something that we need to supplement with? If we could enhance our diet with food first, I'm always going to opt for that solution. But again, yes, there are of course cases where a supplement is very necessary, Mm -hmm. but I'll just kind of start with maybe explaining what pre and probiotics are and maybe what the difference is. Because I think a lot of us have heard of probiotics, but prebiotics may be a new term for some people. Mm-hmm. And, and very important. Yes, very important. So prebiotics are essentially indigestible carbohydrates, which let's just call that fiber, that feeds the healthy bacteria in our gut. So prebiotics are commonly referred to as the food that allows probiotics to flourish. So yeah, prebiotics feed probiotics. And we'll explain that in just a second. But there are tons of sources of prebiotics in in our food. So things like bananas, onions, whole grains, asparagus, jicama, legumes, uh, peas, soybeans, garlic, oats, tons of different foods have these prebiotic components in them. And then those prebiotic components fuel or feed probiotics, Mm -hmm. which we all know to be the living organisms or quote unquote good bacteria or strains of bacteria or yeast in the gut. So probiotics can be found in certain foods, um, but primarily when we think about probiotics, we typically think about them in a supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, But those again are the live bacteria, the live beneficial bacteria in our gut. So, and Probiotics have been scientifically proven to be beneficial to Mm -hmm. our health, especially our digestive system. So some sources of food that contain probiotics, you guys are probably familiar with yogurt. Mm -hmm. I know oftentimes, like at least when I was younger, if I was given an antibiotic, um, the doctor would always say like, make sure you eat like your yogurt with this because it has probiotics in there too. Um, But things like sauerkraut, miso, kombucha, kefir, tempeh, other pickled or fermented foods also contain probiotics Mm -hmm. too. So um, really the biggest takeaway here that I think a lot of people don't know is that pre and probiotics, they really do work together as a team because the prebiotics feed the probiotics, the live organisms in your gut. Um, So including food sources that are rich in both will lead to the most benefit. So for example, if we're going to take a prebiotic food and pair it with a probiotic food, let's say we have a banana and we put that on top of our yogurt and then you can add some granola to that that Mm -hmm. may have oats in it too. Um, So combining things like that will combine the pre and probiotics. One other thought that I wanted to mention is that going back to the gut microbiome conversation, when we think about prebiotics, we all have different 
gut microbiota or flora or organisms living in our gut, right? And we've kind of explained or determined that they're all very different from each other. Like my gut gut microbiome may be very different than Peyton's. So they're kind of like our own little individual fingerprints. And when when we think about prebiotics, prebiotics are feeding the beneficial gut in our bacteria or sorry <laughs> prebiotics are feeding the good bacteria in our guts whereas probiotics are introducing new good bacteria to our gut mm-hmm. so that kind of then leads us to you know should everybody be taking probiotics right and like like we've mentioned certain people with certain conditions may not want to um for example certain certain IBS or like irritable bowel syndrome cases it's causes actually more discomfort Mm -hmm. than positivity but I mean research some research does point to the addition of a probiotic being positive for IBS symptoms but yeah it's just a lot of like wishy-washy in that regard and I feel like if you really wanted to if you were really able to pull and figure out what kind of strands of bacteria you have and finding a probiotic that would then benefit yeah. or introduce new because if you're taking or if you could like create your own right like like almost going to like I don't know a frozen yogurt place and being like okay I want this live yeah. strain and this live strain and this live strain but it doesn't work like that well yeah because if you already have the strain that's in the probiotic it's not going to be adding anything additional yeah correct so that's kind of where the conversation comes from like supplements where you might just be purchasing something that isn't really making too much of a difference or on the flip side, maybe your gut microbiome is completely different than the strains that are in the probiotic and, and you have IBS. Right. And then you're introducing this brand new, um, strain of bacteria into your system and it doesn't it doesn't sit They're not well friends. with you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's what I've, that's what I've seen. And so that's where I'd really just recommend that you work with a registered dietitian to help point mm-hmm. you to certain either probiotic supplements on the market to help you in that case. Because yeah, like Peyton was saying, there's one various types of strains, bacteria strains in the probiotics. There's various types of IBS and it can be difficult to find something that's right for you in certain circumstances. So yeah, I think that's just where I was going with that at the end. Yeah. Um, And so I know we've talked a little bit about like the mental health side, but we have made the point that the brain and the gut are very tightly related. Um, They really do work together. So you'd mentioned, and I obviously was sitting in in your client study when Mm -hmm. we were in our dietetic internship, Um, But when we talk about like anti-inflammatory foods and how that can impact our mental health, do you want to go into a little bit of detail on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. So evidence is really beginning to like indicate the effectiveness in incorporating anti-inflammatory foods in order to, like I mentioned before, boost mood by improving that neurotransmitter reception and reducing inflammation. Um, So I guess I'll first just start by like touching on inflammation quickly Inflammation in the body can be a good thing, and it's important to recognize that. A healthy inflammatory response helps us fight infection or injury like a sprained ankle. Um, However, too much inflammation, kind of like what we were talking about with the cortisol or fight or flight response, too much inflammation or chronic inflammation is not ideal. 
So stress, low activity levels, certain disease states, and pro-inflammatory foods can impact our healthy response to inflammation in the body. Um, So yeah, so consuming anti-inflammatory foods can help aid in decreasing any underlying inflammation and any underlying inflammation that's potentially in your gut, especially if you struggle with, you know, IBS, IBD, Crohn's, or some other inflammatory conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So then that's kind of a just general sense on inflammation in the body. But then when we talk about anti-inflammatory foods, just on a more broader scale, anti-inflammatory foods are in groups like our fruits and vegetables, which Mm -hmm. have, you know, tons of antioxidants, polyphenols, anti-inflammatory agents and fiber that really help drive that inflammation down. Um, They're also in food groups like whole grains, omega-3 fatty acids. And then a really interesting one is herbs and spices. So I learned a ton about this in my clinical case study, but actually cooking and using different herbs and spices can really make a difference in driving inflammation down. Even just simple ones like black pepper, which a lot of us Mm -hmm. use salt and pepper to season quite a bit. Um, but things like black pepper, um, turmeric or turmeric, however you Mm -hmm. pronounce that, um, cayenne pepper and tons of others. I mean, tons of them. And I, that was something that I didn't know at the time. And so I think it's really cool that we can actually help manage inflammation just with how we season our food. So I think there's, there was a little bit of a, a wellness hype about some of those things for a while. And I think there's some truth to that, but people would make like you know, if you have an upset stomach doing things like turmeric or, um, ginger, or like and the shots, lemon, like, like the, yes. Okay. Some yeah. of those, and also just like hot drinks and things like that. But I know turmeric was a big one that people were doing for like anti-inflammatory purposes. Yeah. Um, I'm probably not going to be sipping on turmeric all the time, but some people, if you enjoy it, you know, that could yeah. be something, but some people, um, really actually enjoy it. It's called like golden lattes mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually like a turmeric yes. latte and really the, it's really the active compounds that are found in herbs and spices that are anti-inflammatory. So for example, if we're going to use turmeric, um, the active compound in turmeric is called curcumin. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the like anti-inflammatory agent that we're talking about. But yeah, people make like hot teas or lattes with them, or you'll see people making like, um, fresh pressed juice and then throwing turmeric in them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I do that when I fresh press my own juice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you were seeing like the shots with like turmeric and cayenne pepper and like all the, all the things that are for vinegar. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Don't get us started on that. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of just a a little glimpse into, again, these foods are kind of the same ones that we talked about before is like Mm -hmm. the omega threes and the whole grains and the fruits and vegetables and the diversity of that can be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with that too. So I think talking about the supplement industry in here, like we've kind of already talked about this a little bit, but there's things like greens powders and the debloat pills. And I think, and you can talk about this a little bit too, and like your feelings, but I just, it's the same thing as everything else where you're like, okay, it's a supplement, you know? And so it's like the fruit and veggie gummies or powders or whatever, where someone's like, oh, did you know you could take this and it gives you a whole day's worth in one gummy? And I'm like, really? (laughs) That's surprising. Yeah. Um, and so I think, Right. There's like obviously nutrients in those things. Right. But there's supplements. And so when I'm talking about kind of the fruit and veggie gummies and the and the uh greens powders, if you're using it as a supplement to supplement what you're already doing in your diet, 
cool. So if you're already consuming a lot of fruits and vegetables, if you're already consuming all those different things, and this is just something you want to add and you want to pay for it, cool. But I would never recommend to use those in place of Oh, of vegetables, course. for example. And I think in the future we should probably do a whole um, episode on supplements. Yeah, I have so I, really much to say. Yeah. I have so much to say. Um, but in terms of, let's just, in terms of just like greens powders, for example, a lot of people are like, will that be, will that really help my gut if I take a greens powder? Because it has, um, it's like taking three servings of fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I like to say, well, well, no, it's not like eating three servings of fruits and vegetables because you're missing out on a lot of the fiber. Right. Um, yeah, mostly you're missing out on a lot of the fiber found in the whole fruit or Mm -hmm. vegetable. Um, and how I like to explain greens powders typically is like a multivitamin right? because oftentimes it's just like a powdered multivitamin. It may have some pre or probiotics in there. And typically to be completely honest, they're pretty pricey. I will say, I think there are some great ones on the market. Mm-hmm. And for clients that are interested, there are certain ones that I recommend. Um, but I do just like to mention, you know, if you are consuming a well-balanced diet and we are meeting our needs elsewhere, it may just end up being an expensive right. product. And so, yeah. And to your point, it's just a supplement anyways. And so if you like drinking a greens powder in the morning, if that's part of your routine, 1000%, go for it. Like, right. um, be my guest. I can point you you to some products that I think are better Mm -hmm. than others, but it's, it's all about consuming a, a well-balanced, healthy diet. You're not going to take a greens powder in the morning and have it fix all your problems. And I think that's something too, like as dietitians, I really got into this industry because I want to fix the root cause Mm -hmm. of issues like gut issues or inflammatory issues. I really want to get to the root cause and help you understand that and Mm -hmm. be able to fix that in, in your life. And sometimes I feel like, and you can touch on this a little bit more, but sometimes I feel like certain medications or certain products can be more so seen as like a bandaid to like slap over that problem. And so I just more so like to dive a little deeper and be like, Hey, how can we fix this at the root cause so Mm -hmm. that you get some relief? Right. Um, instead of just trying a bunch of different supplements or medications to, to try and fix the problem. Cause oftentimes that'll just be a bandaid to some mm-hmm. of the symptoms, but it won't actually fix what's going on. Right. So that's just how I like to think about it as a dietitian. And that's one of the reasons I got into the profession. Yeah. And I was going to kind of go down that same route of, I, I personally don't love taking medication. They kind of scare me sometimes. I don't know. They just freak me out. Yeah. Um, and so it's really rare that you'll see me taking something, but I can totally understand. Like if you're uncomfortable, you're bloated, like I get the same way. And there's times where I take gas X, like I'm yeah. like, this stuff's saving me or, right or now. Or specific like digestive enzyme. Like, yes. Yeah. Something that's to, been helpful before for me too. Yeah, yeah. Something to break down, you know, the gas that's happening from all that. Totally understand. So that makes sense. But there's still a reason why that's happening. And maybe it's, you just ate something that, you know, affects you differently. Like I know onions or garlic, some of those things can cause some like digestive reactions and cause extra gas. And I know personally, I think that's part of my problem is I love those things and I'll just consume them how I want them. And then I'm like paying for it a little bit later, but sometimes there are really deep root causes and it's important to kind of think about those before we try to mask them, um, with medications and things. Although, some of these things can't help. Right. 
Um, it's and just long term. Yeah. And we're not saying to like not medicate yourself. If no, you no, have no. a problem yeah. that needs to be yes. taken care of with medication, 1000%. Um, I think it's more so, I think the kind of underlying message we're trying to get across is just with some of these products like greens powders out there, just be aware of, of the marketing, you know, mm-hmm. that they, that they use. And cause a lot of the supplement industry thrives on marketing. So right. just be aware of some of that and, you know, try to understand like, Hey, is there, is there a better way I could enhance my diet or mm-hmm. by all means talk to a registered dietitian about that? I think right. that's really kind of what I'm getting at is like, Hey, let's not fall, um, fall into some of the marketing schemes here to just try to slap a bandaid over some symptoms. Mm-hmm. Let's actually try to figure out what the cause of these symptoms or the cause of this problem is so that again, you can find some relief and, and get on with your life. Right. <laughs> yeah. There are a couple other things that I just want to mention, and I know that I've covered a ton of information. Um, but I want to touch on a few general principles that I like to start with, with clients or questions I like to ask before getting super granular with clients about this type of stuff. First and foremost, I have so many people who come to me talking about various gut problems or symptoms or issues that they're having. And when we start talking about what they're eating and at what times that Mm -hmm. they're eating through the day, typically they're having like one meal a day and that's it. So going very long periods without consistent fueling. So I just think the importance of a consistent fueling schedule is imperative in making sure that your gut is functioning properly. So I like to always ask my athletes or my clients about their fueling schedule, because like I said, going long periods of time without eating can really cause some discomfort, even painful bloating or digestive issues. And of course, it is not always the simple, like, trust me, it is definitely not always the simple, but you'd be surprised at how this may affect you. So mm-hmm. how this may be affecting you. Um, yeah. So if you're somebody who maybe wakes up and eats, eats a little something and then waits like six or seven hours till dinner, and you actually experience like a ton of painful bloating after your last meal, it may be more beneficial to optimize your fueling schedule overall in order to kind of help yourself. So before jumping to something that's super complex, let's just try to optimize that first if it hasn't been explored. Meaning, hey, let's work on eating three balanced meals per day with a few snacks in between, Mm -hmm. especially with my athletes, like prioritizing proper snacks and nutrients around their training. Right. So I just like to start with that and think it's, it's a really important starting place for a lot of you out there that may be like, oh, like I barely eat anything. And I just, every time I eat, I... I have this like pain or discomfort or like extreme bloating. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, let's actually try to increase the frequency that you're eating. And then two, it, it's normal to bloat after you eat. Like right. that's a normal digestive process, but we don't want it to be discomforting or like painful by any means. But I just think it's, Hey, let's start with increasing the frequency that you are eating. And let's talk about what you're eating. And, um, you'd be surprised at how often that actually does tend yeah. to help things. And even kind of the conversation about fueling, and I mean, this will probably come up in our conversation a lot because we always talk about this is you can have these like perfectly healthy, like nutrient dense foods. But if you have those, like you're having, you know, a super fiber rich fruit or vegetable or a really high protein, you know, piece of meat or whatever. And then you go do something high intensity activity, like mm-hmm you're probably not going to feel very good. And that just, again, goes hand in hand with 
There's some timing things that you can look at. There's some different tactics you can um, come up with, you know, with a registered dietitian to be individualized. And so then hopefully you're not having some of those symptoms. Yeah, definitely want to avoid high fiber and high fat foods directly prior to exercise. But um, my last point here, because I know I've, I've, I've talked a ton on this episode, my last point, just kind of wrapping up like exercise and the opinion or and the impacts on gut health, both short-term and long-term. Um, overall, we all know that exercising is a positive thing for us mentally, physically, in terms of, you know, gut health long-term. Absolutely. Long-term regular exercise has a positive effect on the health of our gut. However, short-term Athletes and active individuals should pay attention to their recovery methods, including our nutrition strategies, to really optimize that acute or short-term stress on the gut. So again, to expand on this just a bit, there is a correlation between exercise-induced physical and emotional stress and the production of changes in the gastrointestinal microbiota composition. So I know that sounds like really sciencey, but basically in the short-term we put stress on our bodies when we exercise, especially when we exercise at high intensities. And if we're not recovering properly, then this can cause some short-term negative effects. So um, like I mentioned, although regular physical activity contributes to that microbiota richness, athletes and active individuals really should pay closer attention to their gut health because an estimated of like 20 to 60% of athletes suffer from the stress caused by that intense exercise and then improper recovery, which can negatively impact hormone balance, inflammatory response, and again, like overall affect your mood. So just making sure that in the short term, when we do exercise at high intensities, we're recovering properly. And that means, you know, taking us back down to that regulatory state and making sure that we have a good nutrient dense, um, post-workout meal or snack. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think just to kind of round it out, there's so many different things that can impact our gut health overall. I mean, we've talked about a lot of them. Sleep can play a role. Taking antibiotics can play a role. The environment, our genetics, like all these things play a really important part in maybe how we start out with our microbiota, how we go through our day to day, where you're living, like all these things play a huge role. So specifically with the nutrition side too, and something that I think is just kind of um, implied, but that we can talk about too, is the the role of, you know, super ultra processed foods and the high added sugar intake. And this can actually decrease the diversity in the gut, which is why those fruits and vegetables and whole grains and those kinds of things are so important. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that was a lot, but (laughs) I really hope that you guys learned something or were able to take something away from this. And I mean, trust me, I know it was a lot of information, but in reality, we're really just scratching the surface because there's not a lot that we know about gut health in terms of just like I'd mentioned the simple fact that we don't have decades and decades of, of research on it. Um, and then also what we do know, Peyton and I just scratched the surface. (laughs) Um, so so yeah, we, we hope you learned something and hope you got something out of this episode. And um, yeah, so yeah, follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Um, and on Instagram and on at Instagram. Wellbound Podcast. Yes, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.